Our text this evening is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles as we continue our series through 1 Thessalonians and we're now in chapter 5 this evening verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. For many years now, there's been a bumper sticker that reads, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. And uh, what this bumper sticker confronts is a wrong opinion held by many about Christians. Many think that the church is made up of people who think that they are perfect. And there are a number of reasons why this opinion is held. For one thing, sadly, there are professing Christians who do think that they are perfect, or at least as perfect as any human being can possibly be. I'm reminded by such people of the scribes and Pharisees of the Lord's Uh, day and in Jesus day these men who held very high opinions about themselves even considering themselves to be the standard of righteousness by which other men were to conform if they would share an eternal life with them and the same kind of people exist today within the visible church there are people who continue to trust in their own worthiness to merit eternal life and think that others should be just like them And even the sinful world can recognize that a person who claims to be a perfect Christian is a hypocrite. And so why is the church thought to be made up of people who are perfect? Well, in part because there are some professing Christians who have this opinion about themselves. Another reason is because of a misunderstanding of the gospel, a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. There are many who think that the way to heaven is by good works, and so when a Christian says he knows he's going to heaven, It's assumed by those outside of the church that he's boasting and that he must think that he is perfect. And then there is the reality that as Christians, we fight sin. We do try to lead holy lives. Uh, it's, It's expected that Christians as a whole are going to live differently than many in the world. And so this comes across to the world as though we as Christians are trying to put on a show. And Christians then are accused of hypocrisy. And in contrast, the world takes pride in the fact that it doesn't try to put on a show. Um, At least there are some who who claim that. I've talked to unbelievers who, with an air of humility, will readily admit that they do wrong. And I've also heard uh, the same unbelievers talk about how, unlike Christians, they admit their, their sin and they humbly trust that God will forgive them. But as you talk to them further, you understand that they're not putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ but they're simply trusting that God is going to forgive them because of their good works, because they're doing their best uh, to be good. And so for these and other reasons, Christians have felt the need to set things straight with this bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. But I would point out there are professing Christians who do think they are perfect, and yet the Bible is clear that that attitude is itself sinful It's completely contrary to the gospel and true Christianity. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so the world may think, they may assume that we are doing good works to make ourselves look good before God and men, but the world merely misunderstands the way of salvation, misunderstands why we do what we do. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. It is by faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus that we are cleansed from our sins. Through Christ, we are legally perfect, declared perfect in God's sight, and yet we are not actually perfect. We sin every day, and we constantly need to repent of our sins, daily confessing our sins, striving against our sins to the glory of God. And we do work. If we're, we're thinking and acting correctly as Christians, we, we do work to overcome sin in our lives, but not so that we can look good. We strive for holiness out of gratitude for the salvation that God has given to us through Christ by grace as a gift. And Jesus Christ is that gift. It's only through him taking our place, only through him dying as our substitute, that we have any hope of eternal life in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we believe. And you and I must agree together that those professing Christians who claim to be perfect and who trust in themselves Um, who trust in their own good works, are not true Christians. Christians are sinners, but sinners forgiven and saved only by grace. I introduce this message in this way because these truths are directly related to the verses that we are considering this evening. It's clear from verses 14 and 15 that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of imperfect people church in Thessalonica had people who were not perfect Christians, and so does ours, and this ought not to surprise us. We should not be afraid to be honest and to admit to ourselves and to the world that we are in need of growth and improvement in our Christian lives. The world needs to understand from us that salvation is not about our works. The beauty of the gospel is that even though we are sinners and can never merit eternal life by our works, yet Christ has died and he has made a sacrifice for sin that God accepts as the payment of our sin debt. And the gospel is that even though we continue to sin through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness covers our sins. And as long as we are on this earth, we are going to be in this, involved in this ongoing process of sanctification, of God making us holy. And we ought not to hide this fact. It's not healthy for you as an individual. It's not healthy for us as a church to pretend that we have everything all together. That only leads um, to this idea, lends ammunition to the idea that we are trusting in our works. And yet at the same time, out of a love for God, out of a desire uh, to, to express our gratitude to him for his grace, we need to be honestly evaluating our own lives. And, and we need to be evaluating our church in the light of God's word and working to correct what we find wrong. I believe we ought to view the church of Thessalonica as a church like any other church. Um, from one point of view, I remind you how this church stood out from others. The church in Thessalonica was overall a very strong, well-grounded church. When Timothy returns to Paul with a report about the church, there are no glaring problems that demand emergency measures. As you probably know, there were churches in Paul's day and there are churches today that are plagued with grave problems. 
that, that involve in some cases doctrine, in other cases practice, um, uh, discipline, um, a combination of these things. These are churches that desperately need help. But the church of Thessalonica was not one of these. At the same time, there were issues that Paul felt the need to address because no church on earth is ever perfect. And what we find in verses 14 and 15 is a description of three groups of people who needed special attention. There were the idle, there were the faint-hearted, and there were the weak. And uh, these three groups tend to be found um, wherever you find the church of Jesus Christ. And each of these groups need to be dealt with in a proper way. And this is the subject matter of the verses before us this evening. So first we need to understand what uh, each of these groups, what these people are like, and we need to explain you know, to spend some time explaining why they are the way they are. And then second, we need to consider the biblical response that we ought to have uh, to such brothers and sisters in Christ. So first, our text speaks of the idol. Um, Paul writes, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Um, You might have in your translation the word unruly. Um, This word idle or unruly is really a military word and refers to a soldier who does not hold the line in the pressure of battle but breaks rank. And so over time this word came to describe the undisciplined, uh, people who act in a disorderly manner. And uh, that would especially account for the translation admonish or warn those who are unruly. There's also some evidence that the word was used in the Greek to refer to idleness in the sense of loafing, in the sense of being a slacker. And if we look at the letter to the Thessalonians, it seems that the main kind of unruliness, the main kind of disorderliness that Paul has in mind, again, as we consider the context um, of, of other things that he's brought up, would be this issue of idleness. If we turn for a moment to 2 Thessalonians... In uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, we read these, we, uh, we read these words. <clears throat> now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So these verses refer to walking in in idleness. It's the same word that's found in our text this evening, which in our translation is also translated as the idle, people who are idle. Um, They are unruly, but clearly in the sense of being idle, in terms of not working and not taking up their responsibilities like they ought. 
Um, <clears throat> and Second Thessalonians, in fact, says that these people who are not working, they're being busybodies, which reminds us of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, where we found, find in verses 11 and 12, uh, the apostle is saying, into, he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What was probably happening is that there were members of the church there in Thessalonica who were quitting their jobs because they thought the Lord was coming at any moment. And so they had all kinds of leisure time in which to interfere in other people's business, which is what it means to be a busybody. This usually involves gossip, going around uh, talking in negative ways about other people, an activity which leads to bad feelings and conflicts. These busybodies were likely interfering with and even opposing the work of the leadership of the church, which would explain in part why Paul in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 felt the need to urge the church to respect and to esteem its leaders. Apparently there was some level of disorder in the church for Paul to end verse 13 of chapter 5 by saying, be at peace among yourselves. And so to sum up what is happening to the best of our knowledge, there were those in the church who were creating disorder in the church by their idleness. They weren't working. This gave them idle time on their hands, which they were using to interfere in other people's affairs. Um, they were, this interference extended even to the leaders of the church, probably took the form of members pushing their own agenda. The result was a lack of peace in the church. And there continue to be people in the churches of Jesus Christ who are idle, who are unruly in this particular way. Um, they are gossips. And I'd point out that most of the time, gossips have too much idle time on their hands. All of us need to keep busy in the things that are productive. There's always plenty of church-related work to be done if there are not enough things to be done at home and at work. And there, are, there also continue to be people in the church whose conduct in other ways leads to disorder. They don't like how this or that is done in the church. And to uh, disagree with people, to disagree with things that are being done in the church, that's a right that everyone has. The problem is when one handles his differences in an unruly way. There's a right and a wrong way to handle differences, and the right way is an orderly way. Our God is a God of order, and his will is that the church be a place of order, which is why you are required to go to the person with whom you have a disagreement rather than to talk behind a person's back. And you must go to people in love with the desire to work things out. You must go in humility considering others to be better than yourself. But the unruly, on the other hand, are those who turn every issue into a conflict because they insist on their own way. They are almost always those who do not submit to the authority of the elders and deacons in the church. They think that they know better than everyone else how something should be, and they take their every opportunity to um, push their point and, in the process, disrupt the peace of the church. That's ultimately what's at issue here. These unruly, these idle people are those who bring some level of chaos to the church. That's the first group. The second group are the faint-hearted, where Paul, Paul refers to them as he says, encourage the faint-hearted. These are those who are discouraged because of very difficult life circumstances. 
They are those who, in terms of their Christian faith, have lost heart. In the context of the church in Thessalonica, the faint of heart may be those who are devastated emotionally and spiritually because they believe that their loved ones who have died are going to miss out on the glories of Christ's return. This word faint-hearted can also carry the meaning of being timid. They are afraid of, of asserting themselves. They, have a, they, they lack a healthy level of self-confidence. And so when you put all of these um, ideas together, I pictured the faint-hearted person as one who is discouraged, as one who is downcast. He may be even depressed. This is the person who feels beaten down by life's stresses. And the immediate causes can be many. Difficulties at work, difficulties at home, perhaps a marriage is in trouble, Uh, children at home who are not living like Christians. The faint-hearted may be a young person who is having difficulties at school. The faint-hearted may feel like he's not good at anything. He may feel like life is just too much. You can recognize that the faint-hearted person doesn't have a lot of joy, and there continue to be such people in the church of Jesus Christ. Just because we are Christians doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. It also doesn't mean that we're always going to respond to life's stresses as we ought. That's the second category. And then we have the third category, which is said to be the weak. Paul writes, help the weak. I think you can recognize that in many cases, those who are faint-hearted may also be weak. But weakness can take other forms than being faint-hearted. One commentator I read thinks that the weakness that Paul has in mind is moral weakness. Uh, Paul's warnings against sexual immorality toward the beginning of chapter 4 indicate that there were some in the church who were weak in self-control. But most commentators tend to think that what we have here is more generally a weakness of faith. But isn't it true that a weakness of faith is going to reveal itself outwardly in, in, in many different ways? Uh, If you are weak in faith, you're not going to have the knowledge of Scripture to always stand strong against false doctrine. If you are weak in the faith, you are not equipped to stand strong against sin, including sexual immorality like you should. Weakness in faith is the underlying cause of worry and anxiety. If you are weak in faith, you will become easily discouraged and downcast. And thus, not all who are weak are faint-hearted, But if you are faint-hearted, you are weak. And uh, we all are faint-hearted and weak at times. Who here has never been discouraged? Who here has never struggled with worry? Who has never fallen into sin? Who can claim to have never needed the help of other Christians? None of us has a relationship with God that is as strong as it ought to be. And what we see in the verses before us this evening is a call to all of you to help take care of one another. You might think that it's the calling of only the elders and deacons to deal with these idle and faint-hearted and weak, and of course it is the particular function of the officers, the elders and deacons, to deal with the needs of church members. But notice how this exhortation comes in general to the church. Paul and his companions write, And we urge you, brothers, And what is he urging you and me to do? We are to admonish the idle, we are to encourage the faint-hearted, and we are to help the weak. And then he follows up by telling us what ought to be our general attitude and way with all people. We must be patient with all. 
which is further explained as always seeking the good of others even when people are not nice to us. Never is there a place for revenge and hate. And so then let us now consider more specifically how we are to respond to each of these three groups of people. So we begin with the idol who, are, who we are told are to be admonished. They are to be counseled. I think it was in Sunday school class this morning, or actually in our prayer time this morning, that the Apostle Paul there in Romans 15 uses the word nutheo, which is where we get the word nuthetic for nuthetic counseling. And really we're told here the idol are to be counseled. Again, the word nutheo is here. And that word nutheo, basically, if you, if you think of three C's to help us understand the idea of the word counsel, it means to lovingly confront. So there's the first C, confront people out of concern. Uh, that's the second C. So they are to be confronted in a loving way out of concern to help them change. Change being the third C word. So that's the idea of counsel. These idle people are to be confronted. They are to be confronted in love. They are to be confronted to help them change. Uh, this being idle is not a good thing. It is not pleasing to Christ. Um, some translations have, as we have here in the SV, say admonish, which has the idea that we go to people and we, we speak to them of yeah, how things need to change, how they, they're falling short of God's glory, and we bring God's word to them. Uh, some translations have here the unruly are to be warned, and uh, that would fall under the idea of concern, right? We come to people with concern. We do warn them. We warn them of danger. Well, the, the, what's the danger? Well, the danger of coming under God's judgment or coming under God's chastening hand. Um, the danger of doing those things that are displeasing to God. Um, they need to be warned against those things. They need to be warned about how what they are doing is going to bring harm to Christ's church. It's going to bring harm to the witness of the church in the world. As they look upon the church and see all of this disorder that's going on in the church. Christ cannot possibly be pleased by the unruly behavior of those who are idle. And again, notice that not only the session, but even you as members of the church are to counsel a brother or sister if there is behavior leading to chaos in the church. It's our mutual responsibility to help each other change as we are conformed into the image of Christ. The goal here in particular, is that there would be peace and unity in the church. We are to strive for that. We are to work toward that because that's what pleases Christ. As for the faint-hearted, they are to be encouraged, or maybe your translation says comforted. You must show tenderness to the faint-hearted. You must empathize with them in their struggles. Perhaps you can help in practical ways to relieve some of the stresses in someone's life. You can pray with and for the faint-hearted. You can read encouraging scriptures to them. You can uh, bring to them a friendly visit, a warm hug, a warm meal, a sympathizing tear. Simply letting people know that you care does a lot. These are ways that encouragement can be given. And again, something, something that not that that that. It's not just for pastors and elders and deacons to give to those who are hurting, but every child of God is to help the downtrodden. 
As for the weak, we are to help them or to uphold them. This word literally means to hold on to someone. The idea is that you stick with a person who is in need. You stand with them. You are, you are there with them. If the person is both weak and faint-hearted, you support them and you help them through their struggle. If the person is weak in his knowledge of Scripture, you help them to learn the Scriptures. Perhaps this help takes the form of ongoing encouragement to read and to study the Bible. Perhaps you can teach the Scriptures one-on-one. If a Christian is weak in his ability to fight sin, someone needs to hold that brother accountable. When a person struggles with worry and anxiety, that's a person whose faith in God and in his promises needs to be strengthened. As we said before, there are many ways that a Christian can be weak, but in every case, the weak must be helped. The church must hold on to the weak. The weak must know that they belong to a body which is not going to ever abandon them. They must know that there is a place in the church for them and that they are going to get support and help from the brothers. It's easy for just the opposite to happen. It's actually easy and it's commonplace for the strong to have no sympathy for the weak. Um, The attitude of some can become, well, why doesn't this weak person just have the faith to trust God? Why is that person so discouraged and so discouraged it seems like all the time? Doesn't, Doesn't he know God's promises? Why is that person so tempted by that sin Why is so-and-so always struggling spiritually? Why doesn't he get with it and get his spiritual life together? And uh, what we can fail to do is to realize that all of us are strong and weak in different areas. Not all of us are strong Christians in every area and in every situation and in every way. Some of us are not strong in many areas, while some are not weak in many areas. But in every instance, we must be patient with all. It must be long-suffering. That's the idea here. Long-suffering with other people's weakness and failings, even as they affect us, even as they may even directly affect us. It's true that to be faint-hearted is a spiritual weakness. It's true that those who are weak are not the Christians that they ought to be. It can be frustrating with a person with strong faith to deal with weak brothers and sisters. But remember, we're all at different levels. And even if you are strong now, you weren't always that way. So be patient with all. This includes even those who are idle. Sometimes the unruly behavior of a fellow believer can be the occasion for anger and bitterness. It's not always easy to get along with others, and some people are very difficult. But in all instances, the apostle says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone talking about inside and outside the church. There's no place for retaliation, but loving concern for the good of others is to always dominate. Think for a moment about the loving patience, the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Child of God, think of how he has treated you. Even though you were at one time his enemy, he died for you. He shed his blood in order that your sins could be forgiven. Your rebellion and your hatred of him was met with love and with the desire to suffer in your stead so that you can know the blessings of eternal life. The cross is where Christ died not for good people, not for perfect people, but for the ungodly. 
And think about your Christian walk and all of your weaknesses and failings, even your sin. Have you always had a perfect faith? And when hardships have come into your life, have you always responded with joy and with a perfect trust in God? Can you honestly say you've never been struck with fear and and worry and anxiety? Is there not some area of your life where you are even now prone to sin? The point is this, even with all of your weaknesses in the way of repentance and faith, Christ has forgiven your sin. You are his child and you are loved and always will be. That love will never change. It will never falter. Weakness and sin has never kept a person out of the kingdom of God. The saved are, in fact, those who know they are weak and sinful, but who lay their sins and who lay their needs at the feet of Jesus. And since Jesus loves you, believer, with all of your weakness and sin, then you ought to be able to accept and to love your fellow believers, uh, uh, your, your, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are imperfect. They are imperfect. Christ loved you when you were imperfect. And note, when Christ accepts you, when you accept his people, we're not talking about accepting sin. We're not talking about saying that sin is okay. Acceptance means we take people as they are and we lovingly work with them. And together, out of love for Christ and exactly because he is at work in us, we fight sin in ourselves, we fight it in each other, And we always remember that the church is imperfect because you and I are in it. And the reason we belong to it is because of grace. And let us out of thankfulness for that grace and with an awareness of our own imperfections, be patient with God's people, recognizing that we are all at different stages of maturity. But together we can work at becoming the people of God that he is making us to be. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would take to heart what really comes to us as a command that we would handle the imperfections of folks in the church in a particular way, that we would always admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, recognizing that we at various times and various ways fall into these categories ourselves. We need the help of one another. We belong to your body, the body of Christ. We belong to this body where there is counseling going on, confrontation out of concern that we would change. That goes on because, Father, it is your desire to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And, uh, Father, we, we thank you that our salvation is not a matter of our works. It's not a matter of us trying to, to, to make ourselves perfect but salvation is a matter of trusting in your Son. And, Father, we thank you that he is perfect for us and has suffered in our place. And, uh, Father, we pray that uh, we would be patient with each other, recognizing that we're all involved in this work of being made like you. And so, uh, Lord, give us, we pray, a spirit of of graciousness. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would also welcome uh, the, the help of others. Um, for our own weaknesses and imperfections. We pray these things in Jesus' name.